tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. That's any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Just talking to the voice in my head. Oh dear. Well, at any rate, <laughs> let's. I think we really need to pray. It's been one of those days. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Spirit, grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in His comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell Satan, and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Lord, again, we ask you to bless all those people who are suffering from this terrible situation. We also ask you to, to bring peace to our, our very divided nation. These things through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, thanks for your prayers for all my friends who are ill. I feel like I'm cheating when I do that. But um, um, uh, the voicemail said, that's one of the perks, I guess. Perk schmirk, as we would say in Skokie. But uh, thanks so much. And uh, the people we've been praying for, I got good reports on, but keep them in prayer, especially those who are. are uh, facing life-threatening illnesses, and I, I always pray for all of you. So, it's what we do. All right, well, let us go to the big book on the coffee table. This is this is interesting. Um, well, of course, the whole thing is uh, the big book on the coffee table, but this is First Maccabees 436. And um, uh, we move down to um, the, the, uh, the, the Jesus... Uh, Talking about uh, well, the purification of the temple. It's written, "My house shall be a house of prayer." You've made it a den of thieves. Well, how does that relate to the first reading? This is about Hanukkah. This first Maccabees, the fourth chapter, is about the establishment of Hanukkah. And it's always a great disappointment to my Jewish friends that this section of the book of Maccabees, which they don't regard as inspired. Um, they, they're interested in it, but actually not too many of the Jews I've known have actually read it. They're kind of shocked that it doesn't mention the miracle of the oil. Uh, in a Jewish tradition, I don't know if it's in Talmud or not, but it's a very strong Jewish tradition that they couldn't find enough consecrated oil, and it would be quite a while before they could perform the rituals to consecrate the oil to light the lamp in the temple. Uh, and they found uh, enough for a day or two I think it was a day or two, and it miraculously lasted eight, I think it was eight days. Uh, it lasted the whole week, and uh, that's why the Hanukkah menorah has more candles on it 
than the uh, regular menorah, the seven-branch candlestick. But it's not in the text of, of Maccabees, and I was kind of disappointed about that, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. So that aside, this is about the, the rededication of the temple after the Syrian Greeks had defiled it with pagan images and pagan sacrifices. And uh, it's a very important moment. Now, I want to kind of uh, move off <laughs> Uh, talk a little bit about the Maccabees themselves. Uh, yes, was it yesterday we saw the 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 uh, refusal of Mattathias uh, uh, Hashmon to sacrifice to uh, the pagan gods, and uh, he killed a Jew who was sacrificing, was saying, "Ah, what difference does it make? Let's just move along." And also the the official and that went to the hills. Now everyone says, "Yeah, that's the way to do it," you know. But remember, we read in St. James that human anger does not work the righteousness of God. And I I, I make the point: just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean we should do it. Uh, Abraham had lots of wives, so well we should have lots of what? No. Uh, look how it worked out for Abraham. It didn't work out well at all. Uh, Abraham had uh, a son Ishmael by Hagar, and uh, he had a son uh, uh, Isaac by uh, uh, Rebekah. And uh, Ishmael is the father of the 12 tribes of the Arabs, and um, uh, Isaac, through Jacob, well, he's the grandfather of, of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you can look at what's going on in the Middle East as kind of a family feud. The descendants of one are at the throat of the descendants of the other and vice versa. So um, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean we should do it. The Bible, to me, this is one of the most intriguing things about the Bible, is it lists the sins of its heroes. I mean, it lists the cowardice of Simon Peter. It lists uh, the, the bad temper of James and John. It, it, it mentions the cynicism of Nathaniel, uh, that the Bible really is, I don't know any other book full of heroes that talks about the hero's bad qualities. And that's important. In the Bible, we read the whole truth about people who should be lionized and worshipped. They aren't. So it is with the Maccabees, that, that uh, the Maccabees were a disaster in terms of a family, um, the the uh, Mattathias uh, led uh, uh, the revolution, and uh, uh, the Maccabees were very successful, and they wanted to to continue the revolt and conquer other lands. Galilee was conquered by the Maccabees. They 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 didn't stop; they just kept conquering. Uh, they. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, were fighting over the, this 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 demand to conquer other territories and forcibly convert people to Judaism, and um, we have monarchs such as Alexander Janaeus and Judah Maccabee, and um, uh, um, then we 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 see also that the this is real important to understand the New Testament. So I'm not just trying to dazzle you with obscurities, but I think it's real important to understand this. The, uh, uh, the, the 
the Maccabee family became enmeshed in the local politics and local wars. They didn't know when to stop. And they arrogated to themselves the monarchy, though they weren't descended from King David. And they arrogated to themselves the high priest, though they were not descended from, oh, why can't I think of the name of the of the high priest? The Zadokite, Zadok, um, the Zadokim. Uh, the, the, the Zadok was the high priest uh, um, uh, under David and Solomon, and it was always a descendant of Zadok. You see, the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. A family within that tribe, the family of Aaron, were priests, and the other Levites of the tribe were assistants. Uh, and and so when the temple was established under David and Solomon, Zadok, the high priest, uh, received the right to pass on the high priesthood to his descendants. And that had become the tradition. Well, the Maccabees, though they were priests, they were a priestly family, they weren't, they weren't descendants of Zadok. They weren't descendants of David the king. They had no right to the throne. And when they rebuilt the temple... Uh, or, or rededicated the temple not not too long after that. Now, I'm a little fuzzy on this, but I'm pretty sure that, that this actually happened. Uh, they extended the temple platform. That The temple platform was perfectly square, 500 royal cubits. And Aline Rittmeyer, a, a scholar who unfortunately doesn't get himself peer-reviewed, but he's really smart cookie, uh, Dr. Aline Rittmeyer, R-I-T, I think, M-E-I. I R, I E, Lean Rittmeyer, look it up. The uh, Dr. Rittmeyer makes the point that there is a stone uh, on the west side of of what is now the the Haram is Sharif, which is clearly a Solomonic stone, and you can measure the size of the temple. That stone has since been covered up since Dr. Rittmeyer pointed out that it went back to the temple. But I don't want to go there. The point is that this this it's pretty clear that this temple platform was 500 royal cubits square. Well, the Hashman family, the Maccabees, seem to have extended it. There's something called the Hashmonian extension, and they did it for military purposes. So the, Hash, the Hashman started off fine, but this, this bit of violence was, was there at the beginning. They could have gone off to the mountains and started a revolution, a revolt, without killing a fellow Jew and killing... Uh, the the ambassador or the, the delegate of the king. Uh, well, they they irrigated the high priesthood, they irrigated the monarchy, and they irrigated uh, and they took over the temple, and this created movements such as the Essenes and different different Dead Sea sects who went out to wait for the Messiah because the monarchy, the priesthood, and the temple were corrupt. They weren't going to have anything to do with it. Until the Messiah came, he would reestablish the the Lord's house, and he would reestablish the Davidic monarchy, and he would reestablish the priesthood. He would purify these things. Now, I maintain, and remember, I'm not really a scholar. I just play one on the radio. But I maintain, uh, and uh, people like like Dr. Brand Pitry, who's genuinely a scholar. I mean, he is a cookie of great smartness, and he. You know, it's very funny that the, this cleansing of the temple, which we see today, is um, uh, mentioned in in the context of Holy Week in uh, the Gospels, except in the Gospel of John. It's at the beginning. 
And Dr. Pitrie, I don't know if he still holds this, but I remember talking, I had the privilege of talking to him uh, a few times, and, and I mentioned this to him, and he, he said, no, it, he believes that the cleansing of the temple happened twice. You know, I'm not a scholar, so Dr. Pitrie's probably right, but I would think if Jesus had cleansed the temple early on, it's one of the things that caused his his arrest and execution, that he had fought the corruption in the temple. You see, the temple would have been dominated by the family of, of Annas and, and the, the buying and the selling and the the the, the immorality of, of of the money-making operation in the temple. Uh, well, they weren't going to let Jesus diss them, and so they, they decided to execute him. The Sadducees, not the Pharisees. The Pharisees did not kill Christ. The Sadducees did. At any rate, uh, I think if Jesus had done at the beginning of his ministry, his ministry would have been very short, but that's just me. And if I had to pick my opinion or Dr. Pitry's, well, frankly, I'd go with Dr. Pitry. So that said, I will now charge on to express my opinion on this. I think that the reason that the cleansing of the temple appears at the beginning of the Gospel of John, we learn at the end of the Gospel of John that... Uh, these things have been written that you might know that Jesus is the Messiah. Who's the you? Well, it is pretty clear from the early church fathers and from the text of Scripture that the Gospel of John was directed at the followers of John the Baptist by John, the beloved disciple, who had been a disciple of John the Baptist. They thought that John was the Messiah, and so the Gospel is full of things pointing out that no, no, John said, I'm John the Baptist said, I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is. Behold the Lamb of God. And uh, very interesting that, that uh, the cleansing of the temple was one of the messianic expectations. The Messiah would come and purify the temple. And I think the Gospel of John puts it at the very beginning because he's saying, this is the guy you're looking for. He's cleansing the temple. That's when Jesus said, destroy this temple. I'll build it in three days. Those were fighting words. And uh, that's exactly what's going on in this in this gospel today in the first reading, that the temple had been purified by the Maccabees, but they quickly defiled it again, using it for their own dynastic and military purposes. And Jesus purifies the temple again. The Maccabees had redefiled the temple in a sense. They started off well, but they wanted power. They wanted to conquer the nations around them, forcibly convert people to Judaism. In fact, is the, the family of Herod, uh, who, who uh, married into the Maccabee family and ultimately killed them all, uh, um, he was, uh, he was, his family was forcibly converted. They were Edomites, essentially Arabs who were forcibly converted to Judaism about a century before Christ. So I think that, that, that um, to me, the Maccabees is a glorious example of how we can start off well in, in God's purposes, and then we can fall flat on our faces. Um, well, Jesus purifies the temple. And the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were seeking to put him to death. Now, to me, the interesting part of this, you know, that, that nonsense, the Jews killed Christ. Any Jew that you meet today is a theological descendant of the Pharisees. When 
when the high priest said, His blood be on us and on our children, he was talking about the Sadducees. The Sadducees controlled the temple. They were a priestly group. Uh, they were a political party made up of priests. They controlled the income of the temple. Uh, they, they were the wealthy, and uh, they cursed themselves. They didn't curse Judah. They cursed the Sadducees. And with the destruction of the temple, the reason for the existence of the Sadducees evaporated. The Sadducees ceased to be a group in Judaism. The Pharisees, however, if you meet a Jew today, he is a theological, spiritual descendant of the Pharisees. And they were noble people. And you see that they came to Christ's rescue a number of times. Uh, Herod, that fox is out. Herod is out to get you. He said, tell Herod, that fox, uh, that a prophet cannot die outside Jerusalem. You see, the Pharisees tried to rescue Jesus. And the Pharisees, Gamaliel, who was the ranking Pharisee, rescued John and Peter, we see in the Acts of the Apostles. So this nonsense that the Jews killed Christ. No, the Jews didn't. The Sadducees may have, but not the Judeans. So uh, I, I just, I think that when you look at the nuances and the, the, uh, the, the, the depth of history that surrounds the temple, uh, it makes it so much richer that, that the ultimate defiling of the temple was its rebuilding under Herod. <clears throat> that the, 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 the Maccabees extended it for their own purposes, but Herod completely rebuilt it and completely dominated it for his purposes. That's Herod the Great, the one who killed the babies. So many of the Herods you read about in the Bible are his sons and grandsons. Uh, think of Herod as a last name when you see it. Herod the Great, though, he was the one who killed the innocents, and he completely rebuilt the temple, uh, from the inside out, he trained 10,000 priests and Levites. That's a number I've heard as uh, stonemasons and carpenters so that the worship of the temple never ceased, but it, it continued uh, during this rebuilding. And the temple was considered the most beautiful building in the ancient world. People came from all over to see the temple. And what did they find when they entered the temple precincts? They couldn't go into the old sacred uh, square that was marked off. Uh, by a low wall. No Gentile could pass that or they'd be killed. When these uh, non-Jews came to see this beautiful, beautiful, I mean, it was incredible. The front was plated with gold, polished so bright, Josephus says it hurt to look at it in the sunrise. What did they encounter? They encountered a stockyard <laughs> because the bazaars of Annas were selling sacrificial animals and changing money so that you could go into the sacred precinct. And that's what Jesus was upset about, that they had taken um, his father's house and made it a den of thieves. And they, that, we can't let this stand. Jesus is bad for business uh, because Jesus was bad for business. They didn't care about his theology. They cared that he was bad for business. And when a religion descends into a fundraising organization you got to raise funds religion is not cheap i'll admit it but when the fundraising uh, uh, becomes the purpose of the organization it ceases to be at all uh, the the uh, the house of the lord so enough said 888-914-9149 we will be right back slow down you move too fast Got to make the morning last Just kicking down the cobblestones Looking for fun and feeling oh, and groovy yes. Groovy, groovy <laughs> I'm old enough to remember saying groovy and meaning it 
in a non-sarcastic way. Not for long. All right. Well, speaking of groovy, let's go to letters. Okay, I got a letter here. Uh, let me get my glasses on, which, of course, are important. This is from, um, uh, let's see here. No, that's, uh, this is an odd letter that I can't quite understand from Dan. Um, uh, the Dewey Reams is a translation of Latin into English. Um, yeah, the, the Vulgate into English. Uh, oh, dear. Uh, um, I then thought that Reps 4 might have a different meaning back when it was translated. I, 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 Dan, could you reference the scripture passage that you're talking about? Because the, the letters get old, and I, I, I'm not quite sure where the, where the passage is. Okay, let's see here. All right, now I've got one that I wanted to look at that was a really good insight here. They're all good insights, but if I can find it... Uh, which, of course, I can't. Oh, wait, wait, there I did. Okay. The, uh, this, is a, this is a part of Dan's letter, but this, this I can deal with. <laughs> what is meant by Jerusalem, a city with compact unity? Another translation is it is Jerusalem, a city at unity within itself. Well, if you ever saw the old city of Jerusalem, the city of David, it really is a tinky, tiny, um, uh, um, uh, little 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 place and it it was it was pretty much uh um uh, well a compact city it was tiny but the hebrew text says jerusalem is built as a city uh and then the word here in hebrew is uh from habar which is the word for neighbor it means to unite, to be joined to. It can even mean to tie a magic knot or spell to charm. And it, it, it means to, to be, you know, tied together. So it can imply a, a, a unity, but it also implies um, a compact neighborhood. Jerusalem is built as a city strongly compact. To it, the tribes go up. So I don't know if that answers your question, uh, but but it can imply uh, 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 the unity that a neighborhood has. It's built as a city. Uh, it's a place where, where people have to know each other because they're living close together. So I, I think that was an interesting word. Uh, so thanks, Dan. All right, let me uh, move back to the computer A. Now, this is um, a very interesting this is a very interesting letter from John. Uh, he he, uh, the Thanksgiving Day program was a repeat. Uh, you spoke of James five sixteen. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. However, this is uh, uh, to me uh, one of the proof texts for the sacrament of reconciliation. However, I didn't hear you reference John twenty verses 20 to 23. After this, he said, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you as the father sent me. So I'm sending you. And that's an interesting word. Uh, uh, apostello. Uh, uh, it, it means 
to send to on mission, but with authority. I'm always telling you, apostle means missionary, but not just, yeah, I'm a missionary. No, it's, you are a delegated missionary. This is a, it's, it's, it's a, a rather legal term. So uh, Jesus is clearly delegating these people when he sends them. Uh, so peace be with you. As the Father has delegated me, I am delegating you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Um, this, this, uh, um, uh, um, you could make the point that the, the text I quoted in James doesn't necessarily mean confession to a priest. And in the early church, you didn't confess to a priest. You confessed to the bishop in front of the whole congregation. It was, and you went to confession for a serious sin once. Uh, they were pretty strict about it. Uh, at least that's the way I was taught. I'm not sure that that was universally so, but still, that was what I was taught in seminary. So uh, this idea of, of uh, I think the word here that Jesus is delegating these disciples, that I think that has a great deal of weight. So again, thank you uh, for reminding me of that, uh, John. All right, let's see here. All right. Now, let me go up to more letters. Okay. Let's see here. Let me look at the at the clock. We're good. All right. This is um this is uh, to me a rather serious question. Uh I am in a grief group for parents who've lost adult children. My son, I won't mention the name. Uh he died uh um in in 2019 at the age of 35. One of the mothers in the group has given us information about a medium she consults, saying that she's heard her deceased son's voice and how comforting it is. She's not Catholic, but I'm not supposed to use mediums, correct? I just need an explanation as to why when she asks me if I've tried to contact my son. Um, uh, that is an extremely dangerous thing to do. I've talked about C.S. Lewis screw tape letters, and he compares us to amphibians living on the edge of a pond. You go into the pond, it's a very dangerous pond. You know that the devil is a liar and the father of lies. Uh, if, uh, there's always some truth in the lie, in a good lie, to make it plausible. And the devil is no fool, believe me. Do not go to mediums. Do not consult with people who claim they can consult with the dead because what they're doing is they're inviting spirits to speak through them. And when you do that, you don't know what spirit you're inviting in. And uh, chances are you are speaking with a very evil spirit. Um, I remember an incident uh, um, like that uh, when some guys in college were using a Ouija board. And the Ouija board said something um, that was right on spot and uh, about someone who was going to die shortly, and they did, and it ruined people's lives. Do not consult mediums. Do not use Ouija boards. You know, this is the, this is the sin of Adam and Eve. They wanted to know more than God was pleased to tell them. Read the passage. She saw that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good for food and for the gaining of knowledge. Good for food and for the gaining of knowledge. Isn't knowledge always good? No. 
We know how to blow up the world. Do we have the wisdom not to do it? Knowledge that is not accompanied by heavenly wisdom can be a very dangerous thing. You know, my, my classmate, friend, Father Brankett, is always saying uh, that we need to bring back the concept of the mad scientist. Uh, I remember in the old science fiction movies, there's always a mad scientist uh, like like uh, uh, Count Frankenstein. Uh, there are a lot of mad scientists. They have a lot of knowledge and very little wisdom. Uh, so uh, knowledge is not a good thing on its own. Knowledge that God reveals to us is for our good and for a heavenly purpose. But when we seek knowledge that isn't from God, we are endangering ourselves and those whom we love. And there's no guarantee that that medium is speaking for a beloved, a loved deceased. And I would venture that that medium is probably speaking in a demonic spirit if they're saying anything authentic. You know, there are lots of different kinds of mediums. There are charlatans who can kind of guess what you're thinking. They're good at picking up signals, but then there are authentic ones. The charlatans are merely hurtful. The authentic ones are dangerous. Well, but I know somebody has a real gift. To want to know something that God is not pleased to tell us is very dangerous. It's very different from prophetic utterance. So please be very, very careful. Um, uh, and do not consult mediums or horoscopes or... All that sort of thing. Uh, I remember uh, uh, there was a fellow, uh, Caribbean voodoo is a very potent thing. And there was a fellow in one of my parishes where there was a large uh, Caribbean population. And uh, he got some lucky numbers from a medium and uh, he won this large amount of money. And then the rest of his life he spent gambling and getting getting uh, lucky numbers from voodoo practitioners and uh, he lost his family and his, his fortune. Uh, the, the devil hooked him and then didn't let him go. So do not, do not confide in anyone who claims to be a medium. All right. Okay. Let me see. Maybe one more. Maybe one more. Let's see here. Is this an anonymous one or not? Okay. Okay. This is from, um, okay. Is it Okay. To put holy water in a spray bottle. Okay, this is from, uh, I think it's Jose. Uh, um, is it okay to put holy water into a spray bottle and spray it on objects? Thank you. I don't see why it would be wrong to spray instead of sprinkle. I've never heard of doing that. Um, just so you do it reverently. Um I think a sprinkle is just as good, uh, but on the other hand, how do you sprinkle it? If you got a, a holy water, they call them an, a spurge, an aspergil. That's a Latin word meaning sprinkler. Um, yeah, spray bottle. I I don't, you know, it's it's fascinating. People want to know the precise rules for application of holy water. You spray some holy water. You sprinkle some holy water. The devil gets the gets the idea, and that's what it is. The devil understands symbols very well. And uh, uh, I always say the devil is a good historian. These things are not, sacramentals are not amulets. They're not magic. They are words. God has made all things through his word. God speaking is what does the trick. It keeps the universe in existence and, and it holds back the devil. And the devil is, he understands words. And holy water is, is kind of an application of a priestly blessing. 
And the devil having is a very good historian, and he has been there throughout history. And he can see the connection between me and the bishop ordained me and the bishop who ordained him and the bishop ordained him and the bishop ordained him all the way back to Christ. And he can see the unbroken chain created by the laying on of, of hands. And he understands the message that this thing belongs to God. It is baptized. It is, it is purified by this, this, this blessing uh, that is a physical blessing that comes to us from Christ. So um, if you want to put it in a spray bottle, well, why not? But the, if you're doing it because you think, well, there will be better penetration and saturation, that's not the point. Uh, if if it, it makes it easier for the appropriate sprinkling, then it's a fine thing. But it is not better or more thorough in any way. I hope that makes sense. I'm excited when you talk about or give information about the Jews, the Jewish faith, who, how practiced insight in the mind of the leaders and the people before Jesus during life on earth. I'm curious as to where I could find this in print, a good reference. You know, I really think that the best book um, in general to do this, the kind of one that got me started, uh, is uh, actually Barclay's commentary on the scriptures. Uh, they were written by his Presbyterian, but this was recommended by Fulton Sheen. And Barclay is very, very good about saying, this is what the Protestants believe. This is what the Catholics believe. This is what I hold. He's, he's very clear about that. And, uh, he really does have a good insight. I think that's spelled B-A-R-C-L-A-Y, Barclay's, uh, uh, daily Bible study guide, I think it's called. And, and it's, it really is good. So that would be my recommendation, having been recommended by Fulton J. Sheen. So if it was just me recommending it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take that too seriously. Steve from Minneapolis. In the Our Father, I've been pondering that kingdom come. Can kingdom be read as royal nature? Is there a better word uh, to come? Uh, well... May thy kingdom come. I don't. I don't see it as a problem if you if you translate the word basilea uh, as 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 royal nature. You see, basilea is a quality of the king. The word basileus is Greek for king. Basilea is kingliness. Uh, there's no equivalent word in English for it. That's why I say royal nature. It's uh, there's all sorts of people who pretend that they're royalty and they're not. Uh, they're just uh, jumped up peasants like me. Uh, they're not royalty. Um, Herod wasn't royalty. Uh, he was just a, a ward boss who, who bought the title king from the Romans. The, uh, this idea of royal nature, the ancient Romans believed and ancient people did believe that if you had the nature of a, if you had a slave for an ancestor, you had a slave nature. If you had a king for an ancestor, even if you weren't a king, you had a kingly nature. So this is the idea, may your royalness come. Um, you can translate it reign, but really it means um, uh, when the king comes, his nature comes with him. So we're praying that, that, you know, we venerate the royalties of this world. I get the biggest kick out of all of these people who are just fascinated by what this movie star is doing. And will this movie star break up with that movie star or the latest scandal? We're fascinated by royalty. Why? They're just overpaid indigents um, that, that uh, uh, I don't understand it, uh, that, that we're fascinated by the scandals, the, the peccadillos, the opinions of, 
the the misdeeds and misdoings of of this class of people who have done nothing but pick the right grandparents that's the the world's royalty christ's royalty is different it's a royalty that washes feet it's a royalty that built table and chairs it's a royalty that was enthroned on a cross and wore a crown of thorns may that vision of royalty come uh, the baby born in the manger. May that vision, that understanding of royalty arrive, and may the other depart. So may your royalness come. And let's forget about these false royalties of the world, because there's only one true king, and that's that's King Jesus. Uh, so I hope that helps, uh, Steve. Uh, let's see here. Okay, we have lots and lots of lines open. We're about to take a break and go to the word of the day. So, again, you can call in at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149, and we will be back with a word of the day. One of the great commie pinko songs of the early 19th century. I, I actually have a friend who, who uh, knew Woody Guthrie, <laughs> who wrote that song. Um, at any rate, uh, the 50s. Oh, the 60s, whatever they were, the 70s. All right, let's, let's go to the word of the day. Give me a word. Any word, and I show you how the root of that word is Greek. It's true. The word, of, the root of this word is, in fact, Greek. Eucharist. Uh, charis is a Greek word meaning grace or uh, it's, it's a, a, a gift. It can mean a, a, an undeserved favor. Uh, and eu, when you see EU, that means well, like uh, eugenics, which is misnamed, means, means well-born. Uh, it's it's uh, very misnamed. Um, it means killing people you don't want in the world. Uh, but uh, euthanasia, uh, thanatos, is death. And euthanasia means a good death, which is also not true. It's a very bad death when you, are, when you commit uh, willful self-murder. But that EU means well. So eukaristin, it means thank you. Now, the, uh, the, the, the rabbis say, and I, I think the Talmud says, that, uh, and of course the Talmud we don't believe is inspired, but it has interesting historical detail in it. The, the word, they said that, that when the Messiah comes, all the sacrifices of the law will cease except the Thanksgiving sacrifice, the Kurban Torah, which involved bread and wine, uh, and was eaten in the in the in your home in Jerusalem after you'd offered it in the temple, uh, and it also involved a lamb. So, and it was a sacrifice that was offered when you had been saved from death. All the sacrifices of the law would pass away, except for uh, this Thanksgiving sacrifice. We wouldn't need sin offerings because when the Messiah comes, there will be no more sin. We wouldn't need all of these other offerings, just the Thanksgiving sacrifice. And the disciples, I think, realized that 
what Jesus had done at the Last Supper was this messianic sacrifice that had been foretold and that they were expecting. So that's what the word means, Eucharist, the Thanksgiving sacrifice, the, 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 the messianic banquet. So as I said at the beginning of the show, for, for us, every time we go to Mass, it's Thanksgiving Day. So I think it's a very appropriate thing. I hope you do go to Mass tomorrow and offer thanks to the Lord, because that's what this is about. So remember, Thanksgiving, uh, uh, it's a big deal with us to be thankful is is to realize God's providence has not let us down. All right, let us go to phone calls. There is something the matter with your fin. Let us go to Michael. Our phones are fine. Michael, what can I do for you? I have been dealing with the thought of our forever being a progression of eternal time and God's forever, which is defined as eternal now. So I die... And I go into his eternal now, or, um, uh, and there's lots of implications here because if I'm sinful, I don't get, I don't, I'm kind of still grabbed a hold of here and now, and I need purgatory, but um, I'm still. Uh, well, it, it, uh, it's how, how, it's yep. a little confusing. Um, the word in Hebrew is olam, which actually I think is related to the word for horizon. So uh, eternity is beyond the horizon. It's beyond what we can perceive. St. Paul says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. Time is, is called the measure of change. And when there is no change, there's no time. Um, we can't conceive of timelessness, but the word eternal means exactly that, eternal uh, timelessness. Uh, in, in, uh, in Latin, they talk secula seculorum, into the age of the ages. In, in Greek, they use the same for into the age. In Hebrew, it's this lolam, which means beyond the horizon. I think that's what it means. What's the difference between eternity for us? Uh, scripture says uh, elsewhere, we shall know as we are known. Right now, I know with my senses. In heaven, I'm not going to have the senses that I have here, at least until the resurrection. So I will have to know in the way that God knows. I will I will lean on the knowledge of God. Um I suspect that what happens when we die is that time ceases. Time begins to cease, and we are who we are. How we experience things in timelessness, I, I don't know. I've never been there. But uh, I know that for God, all moments are now and all places are here. I, I firmly believe that, uh, his omniscience and his omnipresence. And I will participate in that. I won't... I won't be infinite as in my knowledge and my awareness as God is, but... In dependence on God, I will know as I am known. I don't know if this helps at all, but I don't think we can understand it, you know, that, because we are simple and we live in time. Uh, um, and what it what it will be like to live outside of time, who knows? Now, physics is fascinating, and I know nothing about it, but I'm fascinated by it. It is fascinating to me that, that time is not an absolute. There's an old comedy routine from Second City that talks about the old professor, and he is lecturing on time and the universe, time and space, and he looks at his watch and visits a German X, and he says, tick, talk. 
That was all the time there was anywhere in the universe at that time. Here's wrong. That's not true. The time speeds up, slows down at the speed of light. Time is, is, is a relative idea. Time can be bent and time can be sped up, slowed down in physics. And I don't understand that. And that's the material world. I don't know that I'm helping you at all, but I am joining you in your in your questioning of it. Does that help at all? It <laughs> it widens all of the possibilities tremendously, like infinitely. Well, there you go. <laughs> that might be of some help, Lord. You you you're in charge of this. I'll trust you when I get there. God willing, I do. Well, there. Thanks Amen. for calling in, Michael, and I hope that helps somewhat. Let, let's go to Angela now from Newport, Rhode Island. Hi. Hi, Father Angela. Simon. Good. What can How I do you? for you? Pretty good. Oh, I'm Pretty sorry. Good. Well, you don't sound good. I hear you sniffling. Do you have a cold? Well, I'm, I'm, no, I don't have a cold. I just have old age. But what can I do for you? I feel good. <laughs> you look good, too. <laughs> oh. Father Simon, I learned through... Uh, Recently, that I'm 20% Sephardic oh. Jewish oh. and 3% Ashkenazi. Mm -hmm. And however, both my parents are Italian from Italy. My mom's yep. from Naples. My dad's from Puglia. I'm also, yes. I learned, 33% Greek. So I thought yep. I was 100% Italian. Hey. Well, you are. You're 100% <laughs> Italian. Now, you know, those DNA tests, what they do is they tell you, where the genes that you have occur most frequently they don't they don't tell you where you're from so much as they tell you the the areas where you have a commonality now being italian you would of course be part jewish and part greek there is a a uh, small uh, brook uh, <laughs> not much more than a ditch in italy south of that little brook which is somewhere south of rome the, the area was called magna gratia great greece you are probably more genetically Greek than many of the Greeks in Greece. Uh, and then also there were, uh, when the, the temple was destroyed, the, the people who survived the siege of Jerusalem were brought as slaves to Italy. There's a huge admixture of, of uh, Greek in Southern Italians and a huge admixture of Jewish in Southern and Roman Italians. So it's absolutely natural that you would be, that you would have the same genes as, uh, 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 as, as, as Jewish people and as Greek people. But you can probably go back generation upon generation upon generation and your people lived in what is today Italy. Does that explain the mystery? Well, does that mean my Italian side was all, they were also slaves that lived with the Jewish slaves? Well, and the Italians might have been the masters. <laughs> the Italians might have been the masters and the slaves might have been the Jews. I mean. Because they fled uh, uh, Spain, right? Well, no, they didn't they flee Spain. Spain. They, they, they fled the Holy Land. I mean, there's been a population of Jews in Rome. Free Jews, not slaves. Free Jews since oh. the time of Christ. Second oldest well, so, population, the voice in my head is saying, and they great, great restaurants in the in the Jewish ghetto in Rome. They have a lovely wow. synagogue. So this yeah, the, is exciting news. Yeah, it is. It is. And remember, the first generation of Christians, the majority of them were Jewish. What we would call Jewish. Wow. I mean. I mean, the apostles were Jews. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. 
So, so no, you're in good company. Uh, being a, having a lot of uh, Judean genetic material in you, and being a Christian, that's as it should be. So there you go. Why not? Everybody thinks I must have some Jewish in me. I did the 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 the, the DNA thing, and not a drop. <laughs> Except I am one out of three hundred of my ancestors. Uh, was an East Siberian nomad. He must have been terribly lost to end up in Germany. I, I don't know that it's true, but who knows? Those those tests, they tell you not your ancestry so much as the places in the world or the groups in the world with which you share a genetic commonality. So your people have probably been Italian since since Hannibal went through. So, uh, but, but then a few people emigrated from here, a few people emigrated from there. The Greek, the Greek is absolutely uh, reasonable because uh, Southern Italy and Sicily at one point were almost uh, totally Greek. They were Greek colonies. So I hope that helps a little. People have asked me if I was Jewish. I don't know if it's because of my nose. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Italians, Italians, they could pass. So, well, thanks for calling in, Angela. God bless and enjoy. Everything's a gift from the Lord. Let us go to Gilbert, who's calling in from San Jose, California. Gilbert, what can I do for you? Father, um, thank you for taking my call. I'm going to go to a different area where there's less noise. Um, My question is, actually, it's two questions. What is the proper way to uh, cleanse all the sacred vessels? And uh, the other question is, are priests obliged to uh, to clean the sacred vessels? I'm sorry. Well, let, the, uh, let me answer the second question first. That, yes, priests or deacons are obliged to cleanse the sacred vessels. I think a person who is an acolyte, uh, if they're specially delegated, may. But it is it falls to the priest or the deacon to cleanse the sacred vessels, and one does it by pouring water in. Uh, in the old days, you used to pour a little wine in, and then a little wine and more water. Now it's just done with water, but it should be thorough. And uh, the so that's the answer to the second question and and the first question. It's it's done with water, and then you're to consume that water. Uh, you're not supposed to wash it down the sagrarium. The sagrarium is for the disposal of holy water, and the sagrarium is for the the first cleaning of the cloths that are used to purify the sacred vessels. So I hope that answers your question, uh, you know, that uh, um, and care should be taken. I mean, it's a matter of reverence, so... Well, oh, do we have time to go to Laurel from Minneapolis? Laurel, are you with us? Real quick, we got just a minute. Yes. Laurel? Um, yes. I always, wondered, I always wondered why we know that Romans had to crucify people by putting the nail through the distal wrist proximal palm. So right yes. there, right almost on the wrist. Whereas every picture we see, everyone who talks about it, Padre Pio, everybody has it oh, in yeah. the center of the palm. Well, yeah, you have to realize that the stigmatists would have it in the center of the palm because that's the way people expected it, and God was speaking to people in a language they could understand. Any miracle is at the same time prophetic. Uh, but the actual Roman practice of crucifixion was at the very base of the palm, uh, right through what they call the space of desktop. So... Uh, Uh, We see that on the Shroud of Turin. And speaking of the proper way to do things, Drew is coming up.